We have an opportunity this morning to celebrate together the Lord's table, observe the Lord's table. And uh, I was thankful for an opportunity to do that. It's a little different Sunday. Normally we try to do it the first of the month. But we had uh, just uh, challenges with the schedule, and I thought it would be better to observe it today. Um, there's been a, a burden on my heart um, as we observe the Lord's table. If we're going to do it rightly, we want to remember the Lord. And so sometimes because of that, not that every message isn't in some way about the Lord, I want to draw attention to uh, the Lord himself and salvation that we have in him, the atonement. And so the subject of the message oftentimes when we gather and have the Lord's table becomes a focus on something related to that. And uh, today I want to bring a message on the subject of the God who forgives sin. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Micah in your Bible. Micah chapter 7. We're going to read some verses and come back here. But this passage, as you look at verses 18 and 19 of Micah chapter 7, and even verse 20, there is a great word of encouragement, great word of praise draws attention to the uniqueness, the excellence, the glory of our God as a God who pardons sinners, God of forgiveness. We'll consider a little bit about the context of Micah leading up to this, but Micah, whose name means who is like Yah or who is like Yahweh, he asks the question in verse 18, who is a God like you? So this is Michael or Mikel, who is God, a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Who is a God like you? Of all the things that he draws attention to, although we could certainly say the glory of our God is the sum of his attributes, and each of those attributes as he displays that glory is something that exalts him and something we should exalt him for. But is this truth about God that Micah draws attention to? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of his possession, does not retain his anger forever, delights in unchanging love. 
God is a God of forgiveness. His people are to be a people of forgiveness. As a pastor, over time, become more burdened over the reality of Christians who are living in a state of unreconciled conflict. And many Christians, in spite of their profession of faith, do not know how to reconcile with their fellow Christians, with their spouse, their friends. Ken Sandy wrote a little book called Resolving Everyday Conflict, and he draws attention to the fact that the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven, but it is meant to be something for every day. If it doesn't have an impact on everyday life, it reflects either unbelief in the gospel altogether, or it could be a willful resistance to the truth, disobedience. And this matter of forgiveness is something, of course, Jesus was teaching his disciples when he taught them to love one another, and he taught them to wash one another's feet. The teaching and implication of Jesus there in John 13 was that they were to be forgiving of one another. It's how they would wash one another's feet. They would show love to one another by forgiveness. The Apostle Paul taught this in a very familiar verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's the gospel. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, children resemble their father. And those who are the children of God are to resemble God in the way that they live wholly, but also in this practice of forgiveness. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. How are we to be imitators of God? Well, he's just said it. He said, therefore, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving, and then he says, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We have looked the last couple of times we've been observing the Lord's table together at the subject of reconciliation. How Great is reconciliation. Well, it's a wonderful thing. We rejoice in it. When it comes to our reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, it's worthy of exaltation, just great delight rejoicing in our lives. Who needs reconciliation? Well, from Isaiah 53, we considered our life as sinners, the distance that that has caused between us and God. And... Just the reality, of course, in Isaiah 53 is there is a substitute. There is a sacrifice. There's someone who came in between us and took our penalties so that we might have that reconciliation. But that reconciliation is achieved because God purposed to send his son, the suffering servant, into this world to die upon the cross 
as a substitutionary sacrifice that we might have our sins forgiven. And it had to be that way for God to maintain his justice and yet justify those who are sinners. Paul expresses it this way in Titus chapter 3, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There it is, the mediator, the one who died on our behalf. And Paul says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's through Christ. It's through his offering of himself. And that was out of the love of God. He sent Christ into the world. Why did he send Christ? Well, ultimately it brings him glory. But one of the things that brings him glory is as he forgives and at the same time maintains his justice and deals with sin as Christ died upon the cross and absorbed or took the wrath of God for us. So I want to consider in verse 18 and 19 here the glory of God as he delights in forgiving. But I also want to look at the authority of God to forgive and then from passage in Exodus, this is something that God says is something that when Moses said, show me your glory, God revealed that he was a forgiving God. And so this really is, this passage talks about his delight in Micah, but it is his glory to forgive. And then lastly, the way in which God forgives. So I'm going to ask you to turn back to the passage we read this morning, Exodus 32. Exodus 32. We'll come back. I'll put a marker there in Micah. Those minor prophets might be a little bit harder for us to find. But that's a passage worth marking anyway. Meditate on the truth of it. We read what took place here on the mountain. We read of the people's impatience and then their idolatry. We read of Aaron's failure to lead them in the right way. We read of Moses coming down, shattering those tablets. We read of the judgment that was immediately given. Idolatry was a capital crime, and so there was capital punishment given on this day exercised there by the Levites. 3,000 fell that day, it says in verse 28. And then Moses confronts, rebukes the people in verse 30, Exodus 32. He says, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, or perhaps I can make covering for your sin. Moses doesn't know what the Lord is going to say, but he takes words to the Lord and tells the Lord what, of course, the Lord already knows. Verse 31, 
Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. If you will, and if not. Does God have to forgive? Must he forgive? Well, I think if you just look through the pages of Scripture, you see times where people sinned and there was really no opportunity. Remember Lot's wife? Nadab and Abihu? Uzzah, who reached out and touched the ark? Sodom and Gomorrah? The seven nations of Canaan? While God did forgive, even in the context of those seven nations, remember Rahab, he did not have to forgive. Moses' question, if you will, and if not, implies that there is the possibility that the Lord would not forgive, that he may not forgive, that this is a choice that he makes by his own glory. There's a text in 2 Kings chapter 24 which describes the sins of Manasseh, which if you look at Manasseh and his wicked reign and all the things that he did, he shed a lot of innocent blood. It says that the Lord sent against Israel and the king that followed Manasseh bands of soldiers to attack them, to destroy them. The prophet says, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. He would not. So here, Israel has sinned against God. We know the story. We know the end of the story. Is God going to forgive this nation? Well, we know the nation continues to exist. It's based upon God's mercy because he did forgive. But did he have to? I think the answer to that is no. Notice what he says when Moses asks in verse 32, blot me out from your book, which you have written. Of course, Moses had been up on the top of the mountain. Joshua apparently had been in proximity. But the Lord directs Moses to think in terms of personal responsibility and judgment. When he says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. That's individual, direct responsibility. And God punishes sin by inflicting suffering in judgment. Or in this case, I believe what he's talking about is either blotting them out of the book of the living, which is one interpretation of this idea of blotting a person out of the book, or this is a matter of a covenant that God is making with Israel, and that covenant, if transgressed against, God would then remove that person from his covenant blessings. Now, there is a book of life, and sometimes this passage uh, 
draws attention to that subject. I think the best way to see the connection is that whatever the Lord is talking about here, there's an analogy to the book of life. The book of life, which was written before the foundation of the world, that contains the names of those whom God has chosen by His grace who would believe. And that's another subject of study, but there's an analogy here that God has a book. There are names written. In this case, the book has to do with the covenant, and God at times speaks in terms of judgment as a cutting off from His people as a removing certain people by, because of their sins, certainly from his presence, but also from the blessings of the covenant. What happened to this generation of people who came out of the land of Egypt? I'll ask you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1 for a moment. We're right in the middle of a story, the story of the Exodus that eventually brought the people to the land of Canaan. Joshua took them in. Of course, as they came close to the land, sent spies into the land, those spies went in, and while there were two who gave a good report of the land and said we ought to go in, the majority said, no, we should not. Look at verse 34. The Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers. What happened to that generation? They died in the wilderness. Their children went in, but they did not. Does the Lord have to forgive? No, he has the prerogative He has the authority to forgive or to refuse forgiveness. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God's forgiveness was given indiscriminately to everyone, that would not bring about fear. That would be a God who just accepts whatever I do. It doesn't matter. He's going to forgive me. That's not the case with God. He does forgive, but he also at times does not. We see those differences in Scripture recognize he has the authority, the prerogative to give forgiveness or to refuse to. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's another passage that exalts God as the one who forgives. Turn over, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. Remember this story? They brought a paralytic. They dug through the roof so that they could let this man down because the crowd was so overwhelming. When they let this man down through the roof, verse 5 It says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Rather than drawing attention to the need for healing, Jesus was ministering to his soul. Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And there's a response, verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? God is not only the one who has the authority, but he's the only one. He's the only one who has authority. Now, in this case, Jesus is showing that he is God. Jesus responded to their questioning in their hearts, verse 6 to verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? One involves an invisible transaction between the God of heaven and a soul. The other involves a miraculous work that would be observable to everyone. But just so you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, to actually accomplish that, that invisible transaction between God and man, he then said to the paralytic, Verse 11, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The God-man, forgiving sins. And when we think about his authority to forgive, and at times when he judges I think it's important to remember there are times when God displays his wrath and judges, but if we look at this matter of forgiveness, even in the life and ministry of Christ, you can see God's posture towards those who repent and turn and seek and ask for forgiveness. See, that's the key. And you could, I'm sure... Look at the details of that thief on the cross next to Christ and see even in his interaction in the Gospels as they portray him that he was at one point actually abusing Christ with his words along with the other. But something changed and he came to the point where he recognized and said to the other thief, we are suffering justly, confession of his own sin. But this man has done nothing wrong, confession of the innocence of Christ. And then turned to Christ and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' response? Immediately he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was ready to pardon. He was willing to forgive. He has the authority The thief on the other side did not repent, did not turn. I don't know who said it, but one person said, we've got two thieves, one to give us hope, and the other so that no one would presume that in those dying moments a person could come to Christ. And that man did come to Christ, and Christ was willing to forgive So when we think about the authority of God, the prerogative of forgiveness, he retains that. He holds that. Doesn't have to give it. When he does, 
It's given to those who turn in repentant faith. Turn, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 34. Moses has entreated the Lord. The Lord has not destroyed the people. He has forgiven. He has also been gracious to say that he would go with the people of Israel into the land. Verse 14 of chapter 33 says, My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Moses longs, among other things, to know more of the Lord. Verse 17 of chapter 33 says, The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you my name. Verse 18, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. There's another statement of God's sovereign giving of mercy and grace at his will. So Moses is going to in some way, see the goodness of God, the name of the Lord proclaimed before him. And when he comes up to the mountain, look at verse 5 of chapter 34. In answer to his prayer, show me your glory, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. And again, that's the name Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There it is. The glory of God to forgive. As he passes before Moses and shows him his goodness and proclaims his name, what are we to associate with that name? among other things, that he forgives. That he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is the glory of God. This is his unique excellence. And we see not just that truth about God, we also see the motivation. If you look at verse 6, when he proclaims his identity as a self-existent, eternal, sovereign God the ruler of the universe, as his name indicates, his eternality, as his name indicates, then it says compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, or abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Where does that forgiveness come from? It comes from the heart of God. What's the heart of God like? Look at what he says. He's a merciful God, infinitely so. He's a compassionate God. He's abounding in loving kindness, that steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. And that's extended to generation upon generation. It says thousands. And it's expressed through that matter of forgiveness, which is the releasing of the debt 
That's how God acts. That loving kindness and truth, faithfulness that characterizes God, that is then expressed in forgiveness, is reason to praise Him. And even today, if you've been forgiven of your sins, you have reason to praise the Lord. That came not out of just a mechanical transaction because you asked for forgiveness. It came from the heart of God, who is a God of compassion and grace and mercy. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. So God's forgiveness is motivated by his compassion, his grace, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. And when he forgives, he removes that guilt. When it says that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, those descriptions of sin, different ways to look at sin, transgression is stepping over the mark, iniquity is a twistedness, it's deviating from the right path, sin is missing the mark, And God, in his compassion and mercy, is willing to forgive and to remove that guilt from the sinner who has committed that sin. Yet, at the same time, look at verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So God forgives, but he also punishes sin. And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, you can see David in the life of David, Psalm 32, verse 5, as he talks about withholding his confession from the Lord and the problems that resulted in his inner life as a result of that. But when he confessed his sin to the Lord, he says, the Lord took away the guilt of my sin. He took away David's responsibility cleansed him, washed him. The guilt was gone. I have sinned against the Lord, he told Nathan the prophet. The Lord also has put away your sin. Now, in discipline, I think as you look through the scriptures and even David's life, you can see that God, while he forgives, that doesn't preclude his dealing in discipline with his child. David experienced in his life, because of what he did, the discipline of the Lord. There were consequences for his sin, but was he forgiven? Yes. And so God's forgiveness, while given, and there's a removal of guilt, it doesn't preclude the thought of chastisement. It's not, I just say these words and magically all the consequences of my sin disappear. That's not the way it works. Those that you've sinned against may not trust you. Those that you've sinned against, you may have brought about great consequences for yourself or for their life. And it's interesting that the Lord says it 
again in his word in another way. Psalm 99, verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. But in terms of the guilt before an infinite and eternal God, it's removed. That is not standing in the way of David's relationship with God forever. When David appears before the judgment seat, he's not going to bring up all of those things that he did. Not the murder, not the adultery, not the sins in his kingdom. No, those are dealt with. God forgave. There was discipline in David's life. There was, in part, God's punishment so that the nations around would see that the king, who is a man after God's own heart, cannot just sin and get away with it. God is not permissive. He's not indulgent. He's not just going to allow something to kind of be swept under the carpet. No, he deals with sin. And that statement in verse 7 yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Just It leaves us with this thought that, okay, so he forgives, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So what happens to David's sin? I mean, how does that dealt with? And it's not just dealt with by the trouble he had in his kingdom because David deserved the death penalty for the adultery and the murder. And so, obviously, we only find a solution to that as we look toward the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get there, turn back to Micah. Who is a God like you, Micah 7, 18, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? What kind of iniquity? What kind of rebellious acts? Verse 19, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. What kind of iniquities? And what sins does he cast into the depths of the sea? Well, in Micah 1, it was rampant idolatry across the board. In Micah 2, it is wicked scheming and perpetration of their crimes against one another. Micah 3, they loved evil and they hated good. The leaders in Micah 3 oppressed the people and led them astray. There was false teaching, false prophets who were corrupt. There was wide-scale disobedience. And Micah's present circumstance in chapter 7 here, as he describes it, look at the first part of the chapter. Woe is me, for I'm like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or the first ripe fig which I crave. He went to the vine, there's nothing on the vine. Went to the tree, there's nothing on the tree. What's he talking about? Verse 2 tells us the godly person has perished from the land. There's no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. There's murderous intent and action. There's treachery. They are ambidextrous in evil. Look, verse 3, it says, concerning evil, both hands do it well. Have you ever been amazed somebody can turn around and bat right hand or left or catch right hand or left or throw right hand or left? This is 
being able to sin very skillfully with both hands. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, so there's corruption. A great man speaks of the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The idea there is there's corruption even on the highest levels of society. Micah says the best of them is like a briar, the most upright, like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come, then their confusion will occur. What's it like in that society? Well, he says, don't trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Why? Because there was treachery on every side. There was dishonor. Look at verse 6. For a son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. That's the corruption in Micah's day. What we saw in Exodus 32, we know it's not the beginning. It was a major and flagrant offense to God at the base of the mountain where he's revealing his law. Read through the rest of the law. See all the grumbling and complaining and sin that took place in the nation of Israel. And then as they get into the land, their failure to deal with the sin uh, with the, the nations of Canaan and their own sin in that way, and their sin in the land and judges. And follow the rest of the Old Testament. Micah's just in the middle of all that. But in the midst of all of that, God is still giving to Micah and to Isaiah and to the other prophets a vision of a time when God would, by his grace, yes, still forgive his people. He would not cast them off forever. Notice in verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? There would be many who would die. There would be many who would fall under his judgment, but there would be some who even as a remnant would sin against God and yet God would forgive them. And that would show the glory of of his unchanging love that he delights in, that he takes pleasure in. He takes joy and satisfaction in giving forgiveness. This is something that brings glory to him as he gives forgiveness to sinners. Again, verse 19 of Micah 7 is that motivation of his compassion, that compassion out of which comes those acts of loyalty And that forgiveness that's described as treading our iniquities underfoot, counting them as something that's forgotten, dealt with, even like the Egyptians cast into the depths of the sea. And isn't it a wonderful thing when you know that your sins are forgiven and they're as far from you as the east is from the west? They're blotted out. They're cast into the depths of the deepest sea. And God willingly does that. Graciously does that. Mercifully does that. Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Now we would say it's his love. 
His love was what planned redemption and sent Christ. But that forgiveness is channeled to us, if I could say that way, through Christ, through the mediator, through the redeemer, through the substitute. God delights in forgiveness, but he gives that forgiveness through Christ. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 13, in view, in verse 13, the he that's referred to in verse 13 is the Father, because it's the Father who is given thanks to, in verse 12. So it's the Father who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, that is, in the Son, we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Of course, as God's plan was progressively revealed, he showed that through sacrifice, through a lamb, that a person bringing that sacrifice to God, the blood being shed, placed upon the altar, that that sacrificial act was a picture, we learn, of the lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. So he gave a picture of what he was going to do, and then he sent Christ into the world, and John, of course, proclaimed that. And Christ, as he comes and preaches the gospel and lives a sinless life and dies upon the cross and rises again, he was that lamb. He offered that sacrifice through which a sinner, if they trust in that sacrifice, if they trust in Jesus, can have their sins forgiven. In other words, the, the, the text in Exodus 34 that God will, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means clear the guilty. He'll, 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 he will punish those who commit iniquity. How does he do both of those? The only way is that he deals with that sin in Christ. He punishes our sin in Christ. And so it's through Christ, the sacrifice on our behalf, that we obtain that forgiveness of sins. It might cost us nothing as we come to God and ask Him for forgiveness, but it costs Christ everything as He gave Himself as a sacrifice. He died upon the cross. He suffered contempt and abuse and crucifixion on a Roman cross and separation from God the Father to obtain that for us. Paul says here, in whom, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption. Redemption is the release or deliverance effected by the payment of a ransom. We are released from our sins by the payment of Christ upon the cross. And it is through that that we're delivered not only from our sins, but from the curse of the law, which calls for our judgment. Paul says it in Acts chapter 20. What did it cost Christ to secure that redemption? What did it cost God to purchase 
us and that redemption for us. It says to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. This is a demonstration of the great grace, the favor of God. John, in Revelation, as he's greeting the churches, he says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. The elders, as they sing in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Peter says, Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So God, through Christ, redeems us, purchases us, saves us, and in doing so, he loses none of his glory. In fact, it's a display of his glory to forgive, but not only does he forgive, but he also exacts the penalty. Jonathan Edwards said, God may, through Christ, pardon the greatest sinner without any prejudice to the honor of his majesty. The honor of the divine majesty indeed requires satisfaction, but the sufferings of Christ fully repair the injury. Let the contempt be ever so great, yet if so honorable a person as Christ undertakes to be a mediator for the offender and suffers so much for him, it fully repairs the injury done to the majesty of heaven and earth. The sufferings of Christ fully satisfy justice. The justice of God as the supreme governor and judge of the world requires the punishment of sin. The supreme judge must judge the world according to the rule of justice. The law is no impediment in the way of pardon of the greatest sin if men but do truly come to God for mercy, for Christ has fulfilled the law. He's borne the curse of it in his sufferings. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, he quotes Galatians 3, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And there it is. What was the cost of my forgiveness and yours? The Son of God came to the earth and was nailed to a tree in public shame and agony to the point of death. That ought to sober us. And that's what we did as a race to Christ. This is God's own Son. Would you forgive if someone did something so harmful to your child?
If we're honest, I think we'd have to say, no, I wouldn't. No. But God did. And he does. And it's with his help that we can forgive too. So I just ask you, are you an imitator of God? Do you delight in forgiving? See, a lot of us kind of identify with Peter. Lord, how many times? Seven? I mean, I think I'm being generous when I say seven. What was Jesus' answer? He said 70 times 7. Well, don't take that number down because that wasn't his point. How much has God forgiven you? Okay, and, and, and why? And that's the gospel. And if I'm going to live the gospel in my everyday life, then that has to be taken into account when I think about my relationships with others. Why is it so hard for us to forgive? I think sometimes the reason it's so hard is we forget how much we have been forgiven. We forget. We get bitter and angry because we've been sinned against. By the way, if you're making it hard for someone else to forgive by repeatedly sinning against them, shame on you. As a church, there ought to be fervent love among God's people. All of us. Wash each other's feet. Forgive and be like the Lord. Now, I'm really giving more of a basis for reconciliation today as we look at the Lord and what He's done for us. When it comes down to the practicalities the actual practice of reconciliation, there's more to it for us to understand how to relate to one another in love. I trust in future messages on this subject that the Lord will give us more time to be instructed in that way. But may the Lord encourage us today in His forgiveness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow in adoration to you, to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we come knowing we have a debt that we could never repay. You've forgiven us for all of our sins through Christ. As we remember our Savior today, we remember His body, His blood. We pray that we would rejoice in the forgiveness that You have given us and determine in our relationships with others 
to live a life of reconciliation, pursuing that, seeking that. Give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.